Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Inglis presents a boutique catalogue of 60 race fillies and brood mares to be offered in the Riverside Auditorium on Friday, May the 7th. The chairman's sale will follow the HTBA yearling sale and the Australian weanling and broodmare sales. The 2020 Doncaster winner Natoya will be joined by fellow Group 1 winners Pippi, Celebrity Queen, In Her Time in Fall Do I Am Invincible, El Dorado Dreaming and Dance Dance Dance. Another high-profile mare, Scarlatini, the Dam of Derby winner Angel of Truth will be offered in full to Fastnet Rock. The catalogue includes a host of stakes-winning mares and there are siblings to the likes of Sunlight and Forbidden Love. Heads will turn when Kerr Cheval walks into the ring. She's a half-sister by Schnitzel to world champion Winx and she's in full to Capitalist. Immediately following the sale of Lot 60, Two lifetime breeding rights will be auctioned to Extreme Choice. The young stallion, who in his first crop produced the recent Golden Slipper winner, Stay Inside. What a way to finish a spectacular week of selling in the world-class Riverside Auditorium. A unique sale in a unique atmosphere. The 2021 English Chairman's Sale. Brenton Avdullah was introduced to racing by his father, Peter, who held a Metropolitan Bookmaker's Licence as Brenton was growing up in Melbourne in the early 2000s. Young Avdullah was going to the races with his dad from age 11 or 12 and was quickly entranced by the theatre of the racetrack. It wasn't long before he singled out a favourite jockey who became his inspiration. One of Brenton's classmates at St Bede's College at Mentone was Josh Maloney, son of trainer John Maloney, and it was Josh who arranged for his friend to gain work experience at his father's Caulfield stables. Brenton's fascination with thoroughbreds developed so quickly that he made arrangements to leave school at the end of year nine. His apprenticeship with John Maloney began in October 2006. His first race ride was on Associate at Bendigo one year later. Despite making a few mistakes, Brenton was able to get the horse home in a close finish. Two years later, he was stunned to get a phone call from Gay Waterhouse offering him the opportunity to spend some time at Tullock Lodge. Almost 12 years later, he has a Sydney Jockeys Premiership under his belt, about 1,300 career wins and his all-age stakes win on Colding recently was his ninth Group 1 success. At age 30, Brenton Avdullah is one of the major players among the very powerful Sydney riding ranks. Great to have him on a Supernova Sound podcast on a Sunday morning. Thanks for your time, Brenton. Great to talk. Uh, it's nice to talk to you too, Tappy. Well, you made a lightning little trip to Eagle Farm on Saturday to win the Group 2 Queensland Guineas on Private Eye, which rounded off a terrific week. You won on Colding, 
You had a winner at Warwick Farm on Wednesday, another one at Wyong on Thursday, and a Group 2 yesterday. Yeah, it's been a great, uh, yeah, not only a great week, but probably a great carnival for me, to be honest. Um, mm. You know, I had a, a Ramwick, another Ramwick Guineas with uh, Lions Roar and Fasika won a Group 2 a couple of weeks ago and then, yeah, Colin win the All-Aged into Private Eye yesterday. So, um, yeah, things have been going well and uh, it's just nice to get, get good support off good trainers. I watched that race yesterday, Brendan. You were stone motherless last at the halfway mark and you you wouldn't have sighted them with binoculars. Gee, you were a long way off them. Yeah, I wasn't confident <laughs> throughout. <laughs> he, uh, he never travelled for me and... Um, I didn't really think he was uh, going to pick up there for a little bit, but once I got him to the outside, once straight in and, and put him under a fair bit of pressure, he uh, mm. he responded like a good horse he is and was able to get the job done. Mm. Now, you think Joe Pride is going to send him to the paddock now? Yeah, I think I think Joe's going to send him to the paddock and uh, maybe aim up at a, at a Golden Eagle, which is, uh, yeah, what's well, a $7 million race, so it's a good, good target to have. Mm. To maintain a prominent spot in the Sydney riding ranks, You've got to make a Group 1 statement, haven't you, from time to time? And you've made a couple lately. Lines Roar, as you said, in the Randwick Guineas and Colding in the All Age. Two in, what, a month? Yeah, yeah, two for the Carnival, so it's been good. But, um, yeah, Sydney's a very uh, a very strong group and um, very, very competitive. So uh, if you're not working hard and, and not getting results, you can um, lose your support very quickly. But, uh mm. One thing I've always been taught is uh, you just keep working hard and keep turning up and uh, you just hope things can happen for you. It was your second group one for Chris Waller. Uh, you won the Metrop for him, didn't you, on Come Play With Me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I won the Metropolitan for, for Chris with Come Play With Me and then, yeah, Colin him was the second. So, um, mm. yeah, Chris has obviously been a very dominant trainer for a number of years now and it's uh, I, I do get great support from him and um, it's nice to be able to re- reward him with a couple group ones. Mm. Take us back to the days when you'd go to the races with your dad. Did he field in the main ring or the outer ring? Uh, dad did a bit of everything, uh, but towards the end of it, I think uh, like I think he went broke obviously a couple of times when I was younger. Um, <laughs> yeah, was, uh, you know, started from scratch, and um, mm. I think towards the end of it, when I was getting a bit older, um, you know, early teens, uh, Dad was more sort of going to those Mornington's and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And that's probably where I started to get um, probably interested a bit more, you know, those, those low-profile meetings. You know, you'd, mm. you'd go to your Mornington's, your Cranbourne's, um, you know, that sort of stuff. And uh, mm. there wasn't – you know, there was a crowd there, but not too many people that I could get around and, and do what I wanted. But, um, mm. yeah, they were they were good days. You know, I'd, I'd help them out, whether <laughs> I was uh, unofficially on the books, whether I'd be um, – Going get going to get the the crew some sandwiches or you know <laughs> just getting some new paper sheets or just whatever it was yeah. um, you know was that that was sort of uh, my theory or my um, my goal and then uh, yeah. obviously heading over to the mountain yard pre race and yeah. having a look at all the horses and and the jockeys and um, mm. and then going over to the uh, yeah going over to watch the race and mm. I still I still probably remember the first time I um. I really had like the you know the first time I probably thought about it of uh, being a rider was uh, I was I think it was Mornington and they had the you know the staying race at the top of the straight and you could run down there and stand basically at the barriers and uh, the roar and the you know the barriers opened you could just hear the horses and then when they mm. obviously came around for their final lap um, 
I think from that moment was when I really sort of started to fall in love with the sport. Mm. Now, your dad told you once that Patrick Payne was the best jockey in Melbourne. So you started to watch Pat closely in races and uh, he's gone on to great success as a trainer. Have you ever had a race ride for Pat? No, never had a race ride for Pat, but uh, he was always, yeah, Paddy was always dad's number one and um, <laughs> he always used to, yeah, always used to highlight him out and, yeah, he, I think he wanted me to idolise Pat, Patrick from a young age and um, just the way you could sit on a horse and ride. You, um, mm. And his record speaks for itself. He's obviously He was obviously a top-class rider and he's doing a, a great thing now with his training. Mm. Well, we said that you left at uh, year nine, at the end of year nine, but you tell me you were not hopeless scholastically. No, um, I wasn't I wasn't too bad at school. School was all right and I was pretty good at my sport as well. So... Um, mm. I went to uh, St. Bede's College there in, in Mentone and, uh, yeah, year seven and eight, I was pretty sharp on the ball and by the time year nine came around, um, I sort of was getting the inkling that I was going to be leaving, that uh, the concentration probably wasn't there as, as much. But, uh, no. uh, yeah, I, 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 found, I found school pretty pretty easy and uh, I enjoyed my sport. Um, but, uh, yeah, year nine got a little bit more, little bit more casual. Um mm. When the uh, when the thought of racing could could potentially happen. Now, Breton, before we talk racing, can we appease the curiosity that people have about your surname? I'll bet you've been asked this question a million times. Where does Avdullah come from? I've been claimed by everyone, Tappy. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, depends where uh, where I walk into, what crowd. But a lot of people can claim me. Um, but yeah, my grandfather uh, was Albanian and my grandmother was Greek. So uh, dad's ah. side of the family, that's where it's come from. So uh, yeah, they were obviously, they met obviously overseas and then came to Australia and, and had my father. So um, that's where my background is. Albanian Greek cross. Yeah. Uh, I suppose you can't, <laughs> you wouldn't find a matter crew anywhere, I don't think. No, not among the jockeys. <laughs> no, not, that's it for sure. Is it true? that when you first went to Maloney's stable for work experience, you didn't know how to put a head collar on a horse? No, not at all, not at all. Um, obviously, I went to school with uh, with John's son, Josh, and um, at the same time, my dad was also friend had you know, had mutual friends that were uh, involved with the Maloney stable, so uh, that just seemed to be a good fit, and um, John was very welcoming at that stage early on, and he uh, basically told Dad when I turned up there for the first time that, look, uh, I'll be able to give you this eight – it was over the school holidays over the Christmas. He said, I'll be able to give you a rundown if this kid will make it or not. And, um, mm. you know, I think after the end of the eight weeks, John told my parents that I, I was leaving school and going to start an apprenticeship. And, uh, yeah, John mm. basically taught me everything, uh, you know, from putting a head collar on a horse to getting on the back of a horse and um, mm. and all the, all the ins and outs in between. Now, there were many who said – at that time, you'd be too heavy to be a jockey. In fact, is it true you were 53 kilos at age 16? Most little kids are walking around at 38 or 39 at that stage. Yeah, funny. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't big, but I wasn't small. But, um, yeah, I just sort of, uh, yeah, I reckon when I first got to the apprentice school there, I would have been one of the biggest in the class. There was a couple bigger that have mm. obviously retired now, but, I definitely wasn't one of the lightest. Um, 
Yeah, I remember having the sweat for my first race ride. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it just shows you. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I reckon I started around 53 and um, it was about 16. And, yeah, a lot of people thought, oh, well, this kid's got none. You know, the size of my foot. I think I was a size seven at, back nice. then and um, mm. 53 kilos. They said, well, he's just going to keep growing. So, um, but, but one guarantee John did say was, uh, well, if, if he's going to get too heavy in that, I'll make sure he's, he ends up back at school, you know, within 12 months. So um, on that guarantee that we started and uh, I was lucky enough to obviously just to keep looking after my weight. And I was very stubborn and still am back then. Um, you know, if someone said I couldn't do anything, which is still now, um, I'd always try and prove him wrong. So uh, I definitely used to starve myself back then just to, to make a point. Mm. Well, that's almost 15 years ago, Brendan, and here you are winning a Group 2 at Eagle Farm yesterday. Now, you'd completed all of your trial rides and you were just waiting for the boss to come along one day and say, Brendan, i got a ride for you. But uh, the weeks and the months ticked by and still no offers. So you eventually asked him about this horse, Associate. You must have been riding him work, were you, at the time? Yeah, look, everything happened pretty quickly. Um, you know, obviously, I've, I've gone from sort of starting there at John's, you know, 15, 16 to then. Um, yeah, I think I had my first race ride within a year. So, um, yeah, I remember riding associate work and uh, I think I was handling him in the box, you know, after he worked. And mm. I said to John, oh, when's his horse going to run? And he said, oh, he might run, you know, next week. And I said, mm. oh, who's going to ride him? And he said, oh, I haven't done anything yet. And I said, oh, well. It's possible that I could ride him. <laughs> and uh, John just, he didn't really say much. He just left it and he came back to me a bit later and, and gave me the go-ahead. So he obviously had yeah. to ask owners and that sort of stuff. And mm. um, from then on, yeah, it, it was uh, it was very exciting to obviously been given you yeah, your first opportunity. Mm. Just out of interest, did a horse called Vane ever get a mention in the Maloney stable? Oh, plenty of times, plenty of times. Oh, um, I bet he did. Uh, yeah, John's old man, obviously. Jim um, used to be at the stables uh, basically every afternoon, and um, mm. at the end of the at the end of the afternoon shift, I used to always run up and, and get the beers, bring the beers down from the office, and um, <laughs> Jim would always always yeah reminisce or, or tell stories about you know back in the day with Vane and all that sort of stuff, mm. and um, yeah, very uh, at the time I probably didn't appreciate. Um, how big and you know how successful Jim and obviously those, some of those horses were, and how good Bain was. And mm. uh, I can only think about it now of how lucky I was, obviously being in Jim's presence. Yes, absolutely, Brett. And I hope you get to ride top class horses uh, later on in your career. But I'll guarantee you one thing, mate: it's highly unlikely you'll ever ride one as good as Vane. He was a superstar. Yeah, I, I'd completely agree with you. They're uh, once in a lifetime horses, and um, just to be associated with the family, obviously training him's a, a, enough of a highlight for me. Mm. Now back to associate, mate. Uh, John put him in a class one at Bendigo, and you organised two carloads of supporters, family and friends, all turned up to watch you in action, and by your own admission, you won the race, but it wasn't a pretty ride, was it? No, the ride definitely didn't win the race. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was still a bit of a blur that day. Um, it just happened so quick and, uh, you know, you think your trials and all that, you think you're ready for race day. But, uh, 
yeah, it was a blur that day. I think I drew barrier three or four and ended up three wide, no cover, um, off speed. And next thing is we're cornering for home and next thing is we hit the winner post and uh, my head was in front. So uh, <laughs> yeah. it happened very quickly and uh, I think I came back in thinking, well, geez, how easy is this business? I didn't even know what was going on and I won. So uh, <laughs> I think I think I took that for granted and I didn't ride another winner for about 150 rides. But uh, <laughs> it was a very exciting day. Obviously, Bendy has a good two-hour trip from – from where we were living, and um, mm. yeah, we had a very, uh, very enjoyable trip there and back. Mm. You must have had a quiet rap on you at the time because your next two winners were supplied by Robbie Lang and Mick Price. Yeah, um, look, obviously, I was based out of Caulfield, and obviously, I wasn't coming from a, a known racing family, which um, can always, you know, which didn't help in a way. Um, mm. I, uh, I was making a lot of mistakes early on. I probably didn't have the greatest seat on me, uh, mm. which I still don't. You know, I had a, a different style to a lot of young apprentices. Mm. And um, I was doing a bit of work, obviously, at, at Mix and that sort of stuff. But, uh, mm. yeah, I think I rode, you know, I think was it the – I didn't ride probably till the new the, – like those New Year's meetings and the Christmas holiday meetings mm. where you get those holidays and um, you get the meetings out at, you know, Kerrang and, yeah. you know – those sorts of places, Great Western, and I think that's where I sort of started uh, to ride a couple more winners and um, mm. still going. I think I only rode 14 winners for my first sort of season from October to mm. end of the year, the first nine months. I think I only rode 14 winners, so it was pretty quiet. Mm. Um, but, yeah, Mick, 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 Mick gave me a, a, a lot, nice bit of support back then and um, so did Robbie. You had to go to Adelaide to ride your first Metropolitan winner, a horse called Ulysses at the long-gone Cheltenham track. Trainer was Luke Oliver. How did you get on Ulysses in Adelaide? Uh, Luke Luke was training out of Caulfield at the time, um, mm. and I'd always do a lot of work for him. He was putting me on around the mark, um, you know, around the, around the country circuit, and he had a horse that he wanted to send there. And, and John was always of the view that he didn't want me riding in town too quickly. Um, he wanted me to try sort of obviously get a bit, a bit more experience. And when... When Luke offered me that in Adelaide, John just thought, oh, well, it's not a bad opportunity for me to go, obviously, you know, out of Melbourne. So um, if I stuffed it up, it probably wouldn't be too bad in a way. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was able to go there and we, we got the job done. And um, that was, yeah, officially my first Metropolitan success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until I sort of – I didn't really count that until I got the, the Melbourne one ticked off the board, which was probably, mm-hmm. uh, I think, a couple of months later. Yep, and it was Boxing Day 2008. A uh, horse came from a mile back in the field and I can't remember the name of the horse. What was your first Melbourne Metropolitan winner? Uh, pretty sure it was called Winshear. Winshear, so correct. Dale, yep. Dale Sutton. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I've gone from uh, first ride in 2007 to, yeah, just over 12 months later, I had my first... Uh, First Metropolitan winner in town at, Cor- at Caulfield, I think it was, yeah. Mm, yeah, it was. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, bring, you, bring you back some memories now, Tappy, anyway. You were getting to meetings all over the place at that time during your apprenticeship, and one day you're on your way to Moey. Your manager rings on the car phone, and you couldn't believe what you were hearing. Yeah, um, I think we just I just pulled over at the servo, and... Um, Halfway to to Maui, and my manager asked me who he's still my manager now, Mark Van Treat. I've had him for 
basically had him, I think, from after the first 12 months of my riding. So um, mm. been very lucky there, but we've got a great working relationship. And he just basically said that, you know, you've got an offer too good to refuse. I don't even think he gave me a say in the matter. He just said, you're going. Mm. Um, and I was just, what, a you know, 17-year-old, well, basically 18, nearly 18-year-old kid that, uh, mm. I think I was 18, yeah, I think, yeah, just an 18-year-old kid who never really left home before. Mm. Um well, left me. You I know, left the state and uh, basically just packed my bags up, and mm. um, it was meant to be a six-week uh, offer, and yeah. um, just during the carnival, and uh, yeah, six weeks is what mm. <laughs> turned into twelve years. Well, the first time you actually met Gay Waterhouse, you were on a horse near the trainer's hut at Randwick, and it was a most unusual introduction, wasn't it? You've never forgotten it. No, no. Uh, I didn't know what to think when I was um, obviously going to meet Gay for the first time. She was obviously uh, a champion trainer and, um, yeah, she pulled me off my horse and uh, basically said that, uh, yeah, I needed a haircut and I needed to see the skin specialist, I needed to go to the dentist and um, I, I, I couldn't work out what this had anything to do with me being an apprentice to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, but... Um, Soon did I learn that uh, presentation was key and uh, the way you handled yourself was probably more important off the track than what it was on the track. Mm. Now, regarding the haircut, she personally took you to the barbers and shouted you the haircut. Yeah, she sent me to uh, her uh, her personal hair- hairstyles and I went there and got my haircut. So uh, that was a bit different. I'd never had... Um, Never had that sort of <laughs> that sort of service before. I'd usually just get the cheap little barber cuts, but um, mm. yeah, I, uh, it was definitely the experience. And then from there, I obviously went to the dentist and the skin special. So I got I got I got the all in one. Yeah, you went shock blonde a few years ago, didn't you? You just suddenly turned up uh, looking like Andy Warhol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to try something a bit different there. Uh, wasn't getting the support, and there was a there was a, a, a belief, obviously, I think in Hong Kong and the Asian belief that sometimes mm. if you change your hair colour, it can just bring a little bit of luck. I was told, so that's yeah. why I tried it. Didn't last long, did it? Uh, well, I rode a winner. I didn't ride a winner for about I think six weeks, and I ended up riding uh, four in the one day. The first time I turned up the races, so I think it did my <laughs> did its job. <laughs> because Gay had an army of good jockeys at the time, your rides were pretty restricted. You rode a few winners. You won races in town on a horse called Fork and Bridge. Dance Idol was another. Devil's Arcade was another. But uh, she didn't actually throw them at you, did she? No, well, look, I was there for six weeks to start with, and at the time she had obviously Nashra Willer, who was her number one rider, Blake Shin, who was her other number one rider. and mm. um, So Nash would usually ride a lot of the, you know, 55 and a half, 56 and above, and Blake would ride them, you know, the lighter ones. Mm. Um, so then it gave me, yeah, there wasn't much for me there, obviously, to claim off, but I think um, the ones she did put me on were obviously always good rides, and, yeah, I rode a few Saturday winners for her. Falcon Bridge was a good horse to me. Um, I think my first actual Metro winner for her was uh, Dance Idol at Canterbury. Mm. I think I, I picked that up. That was a field of four, and that was my first ride for her. So um, mm. she did get me off on, off the mark very well and um, something I'll always appreciate. When that arrangement with Gay finished, you were pretty well resigned to going back to Melbourne. And then one morning, a bloke called Anthony Cummings bowled over to you at the track, and that changed everything. Yeah, I was. Um, I think I went from six weeks to, I think I extended for about a month at Gaze, and um, 
look, I enjoyed it, but I just, I don't know, I suppose I was missing home and um, I just, yeah, probably wanted to get a bit, bit homesick. And then uh, mm. Anthony obviously offered me, um, yeah, to come over there and, and try my luck there. And he, he sort of guaranteed me that, um, look, he'd treat me more as a, a stable rider rather than an apprentice. Mm. And I think that sort of sucked me in a little bit that, you know, obviously I was going to get, you know, some good opportunities that I probably wouldn't even get in Melbourne um, mm. at the time. And uh, and my manager, I think, was helping him out with his, you know, race rides and, um, you know, doing a bit of jockey uh, racing management there. So um, it just seemed to fit in, you know, well. And I thought, oh, well, I might as well give this a little crack, you know, whilst I'm here. And, um, yeah, it, uh, that's where we turn to for the next chapter. You've had wonderful support from a number of trainers since moving to Sydney, none more so than Graham Begg. He not only put you on every horse in the joint, but he treated you like one of his family. Yeah, um, Graham was obviously a, a massive influence on my career at that stage. Um, I went to apprentice to Anthony and the difference between apprentice Anthony and Gay would sort of at Gay's I'd be required all morning. Mm. When at Anthony he didn't sort of start galloping horses till sort of later in the morning from seven o'clock onwards. So mm. I was allowed to ride a lot of outside work, um, and that outside work obviously led me to sort of riding for um, trainers like Gerald Ryan at Rose Hill um, and Graham Begg and mm. and those sorts at um, at Randwick. So when I was at Randwick, yeah, basically Graham. Um, gave me the full support of his stable and, um, yeah, I think uh, at the time we might have only had 20 boxes or so and um, half of them were stakes horses. So uh, mm. uh, I think, yeah, I went from my first week in Sydney on Epson Day in 2009 to, uh, yeah, a year later riding full-time for Graham um, and uh, and having good, good, and good support. So uh, Graham will always... Uh, yeah, he, he definitely, without him, I probably would have ended up back in um, back in Melbourne for sure. Yeah. The horse to propel you to the big stage was a chestnut mare called Secret Admirer who was raced by John Muir's Milburn Creek Thoroughbred Stud Syndicate. Now, John actually bought her at a weanling sale. Uh, then he re-offered her at the English Classic sale the following year. He passed her in and decided to race her himself. Graham Begg had spoken to John uh, at the sale and happened to mention how much he'd liked that chestnut filly. So later, when it was time to put her into work, John Muir decided to give her to Graham Begg. What are your earliest memories of this daughter of Dubawi? She won a maiden three-year-old, I think, at a second start. Yeah, she, look, she was she was a, a light little filly who can go a bit cane, so I didn't have a lot to do with her early on as in gallop-wise. Um, I'd always gallop with her or, or see her, um, but she always showed nice ability and, um, you know, I trialled her and, you know, rode her and she ran well on debut and then she obviously won her maid and I thought, oh, well, she's, she's quite nice and mm. and then we ran her in a stakes race the week before the flight stakes and... Um, Graham just told me, you know, just make sure you, I don't want you hooking to the outside. I just want you to, to ride her through and educate her and mm. see what she can do late. And she was probably a bit stiff, uh, probably should have won. And mm. a week later, he backed her up in the uh, in the flight stakes and I was able to retain the ride and um, won the flight stakes. And I think from that moment, uh, I thought, oh, well, this Sydney gig's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, obviously uh, 
you know, within within a year of being in Sydney, uh, I'd already ridden a Group One winner. So, um, mm. yeah, no, she was a great mare for me. She she won the Epson a year later, and I think in between we had the All Lovely City win around with Guineas. So, mm. within the space of twelve months, I'd ridden three Group One winners for for Graham Begg and and two two massive mile races at Ramwick, you know, Ramwick Guineas yeah. and an Epson. So, uh, you know, they're they're sort of what you dream of, you know, winning. And I was able to do it at what nineteen years old, um, mm. still an apprentice and. Very thankful to Graham Begg and his team because uh, I've got no doubt without Graham's support and his wife Sue, um, mm. like you said, taking me in, like taking me in, basically treating me like one of their own and, and giving me that support, I probably would have ended up back in Melbourne. Mm. Well, she's a great story secret admirer. She never won again after the Epsom, but she kept picking up good prize money in big races. She ran fifth in a Cox Plate. She ran third in an Emirates. But she finished up winning one point four million. You wouldn't believe it. Three wins. No, yeah, I think I, I was the only one to win on her. I won a maiden, two group ones, and um, mm. we competed in a Cox Plate. I think I rode her in a Caulfield Cup. Um, she ran in, I think she ran thirty-two Emirates. Yeah. Um, I reckon I got beat in. I reckon I ran maybe five or six Group One placings on her within, yeah. and they were all beat within half a length. Yes. So uh, with a bit mm. of luck, she could have been a, a six-time Group One winner, but. Um, Mm. Yeah, very, very thankful that, you know, I got her obviously at a young age and um, she definitely propelled me into the the, the big the big lights of um, Australian racing. You mentioned that third Group 1 winner for Graham Begg. That was I Love This City in the Randwick Guineas in 2011. You'd also won the Hobartville Stakes on I Love This City. You had four race rides for Gerald Ryan on Snitzerland for a win and two seconds, but the win was the one you really wanted in your hometown, the 2014 Group 1 Lightning Stakes. Yeah, that was obviously a big result too. Um, yeah, obviously I had good success in, in Sydney. Um, but, yeah, being a Melbourne boy, obviously growing up there, I wanted to obviously ride a Group 1 winner there and uh, what better way to do it down the, the Flemington Strait, you know, on a group one day and uh, basically mm. from start to finish um, for, for a loyal supporter in Gerald as well who, um, who, who who's given me great support and still does. And, uh, yeah, that was a great, that, that was a, that was a great, great win by her. And um, she deserved her group one. She ran well, you know, she just got beaten the golden slipper and that sort of stuff, but mm. she deserved a group one. And uh, that was the way she got it there in the lightning in 2014. Mm. Brendan, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you after this. The Gosford Race Club fills in for the Australian Turf Club on Saturday, May the 8th, with a top program highlighted by the Coast. Three and four year old quality over 1,600 metres with a purse of half a million. Co features are the listed Gosford Gold Cup worth 250000 and the listed Takeover Target of $150,000. The Scone Race Club will host a unique two day carnival on Friday, May 14 and Saturday. Day the 15th. On the Friday, they'll stay at home for the Scone Cup and the English two-year-old challenge. But the following day, the Scone Club will take the show to town for the Group 3 Dark Jewel Classic worth 200000 and the listed quality sprint, the Luscan Star Stakes. The black type races just keep rolling at Rose Hill with the listed Hortensia Stakes, the listed Denise's Joy and the listed Woodland Stakes for the two-year-old fillies. Complementing the program will be the $300,000 listed English three-year-old guineas. 
the 2021 Scone Racing Carnival will spread huge prize money over two venues. Friday, May 14 on home turf at Scone, Saturday the 15th at Rosehill Gardens. The championships are over, but the autumn spectacular rolls on. My special guest is top jockey Brenton Avdala. Now let's talk about your second Group 1 win in Melbourne. This is a, an amazing story. Philly's name was Lasquetti Spirit. Trained by Lee Curtis, she'd run third in the Fernhill Handicap in Sydney as a two-year-old, but she hadn't won in six starts as a three-year-old leading up to the 2016 Crown Oaks. Her best, in fact, was a second in a 2,000-metre maiden at Hawkesbury. You didn't ride her that day, though, did you? No, no, hadn't uh, had it, never had anything to do with that horse um, mm. till obviously the Oaks and uh, yeah, what a what a way to uh, to break it made anyway. Mm. But um, yeah, I remember uh, my manager called me and basically said, "Oh, I don't think we were, we were riding anywhere on Oaks Day." Um, there was a meeting at Hawkesbury, and mm. I didn't have too much there, and. Um, he said, obviously, you've been offered a ride in the Oaks to Lee Curtis. And I said, oh, yeah, what's this? He goes, let's go your spirit. And I just quickly looked up, you know, the form of her as you do. And I'd seen she had a number of starts and she'd run second at Hawkesbury. Um, and then she'd ran fourth at Kembler in a 2,400-meter maiden class. Mm. Uh, sorry, in a 2,400-meter class one. Mm. And I just thought to myself, well, this form's not good enough to win, a, to win an Oaks. But um, mm. my man just said, oh, just, just watch the replay. Anyway, so I ended up pulling the replay up and her run at um, Kembla just – she wasn't wasn't uh, blessed with a lot of luck through without the run and she was only beaten half the length and she just she just did a lot of work throughout the run and I know it was all being made in class one grade but mm. just the way she sort of stayed over the 2,400, we mm. just thought, oh, well, she'll stay and that's half the battle of an Oaks. Um, you know, a lot of those three-year-old fillies won't stay the trip so – I thought, oh, well, look, I'll go down, I'll ride her, um, I'll go catch up with the family and we'll see what happens. So um, we took the ride on her, headed down there each day and mm. the more, the closer we got to the race, the more we um, we came up with a game plan. I obviously had a bloke helping me with the form at the time and mm. um, Lee, knew, Lee knew of him too and uh, we were we just sort of came up with a plan of, you know, maybe she, we knew she'd stay the trip but just whether she'd be, be fast enough to win the race. We just had the, that was the, the key. So um, mm. we went out there, and uh, what you saw on race day was um, was the game plan we had, and we were able to execute it. You know, one hundred percent. Did you know she was at one hundred and one dollars at start time? Oh, I knew she'd be big odds. Yeah, look, I knew she was going to be big odds, but I I didn't look at her as a winning chance. I looked at her as you know she could run. You know, top six in an Oaks just because yeah. she'd stay the trip. And if she ran top six without winning, I'd, I'd be happy, yeah. um, you know. So uh, that was what, what we thought and um, what a way how, how she surprised us. Oh, it was amazing. You took your time down to the winning post the first time where you were running about third and you didn't amble to the lead until you were actually turning into the back straight. Now, when you did that, Brenton, there looked to be a mile of speed on. That lead of my girl, Chili, was going pretty briskly in front, and uh, I imagine a lot of other jockeys would have popped straight in behind her, but you kept going. You were intent on finding the front. 
Yeah, well, with her, she wasn't the best to begin, sort of, in all her starts, and, and that was one thing we discussed. I said the hardest part with her is trying to get her to the front. Mm-hmm. And um, I, just, I just don't know if she's going to be fast enough. And I just – early, I think I had Damien Oliver on one, one of the main chances sort of roll forward off me early, and I actually had to come back and let him go mm-hmm. just so I was going to be able to get room to, to, to whiz around. And um, so I was able to sort of take care of that, and I was sort of three wide come out of the straight the first time, which I wasn't worried about. And um, I could see Dean Yandel, I'm pretty sure, on the leader uh, rolling along in front. And I just said, look, if I gradually just keep – roll up to him, I reckon he won't hand up. So I just had mm. to be intent to get past him. And um, mm. by the time we got to the 2,000 metre mark, I was able to take control of the race and roll away. And um, mm. and, and, and I think I think they were two of two very critical plays of that race, mm. um, obviously staying out of trouble the first corner and then taking control by the 2,000. Uh, I think without that, she, she mm. probably doesn't win the race. And um, from then on, yeah. she was able to, you know, roll down the back and um, – Control the speed and or control her own speed. I didn't. I didn't ride her to any set tempo, no. rather than just uh, what I felt she was comfortable with handling. Yeah, you didn't tear away half a furlong in front. You you led by seven or eight lengths, but you just kept rolling. Coming around the turn, though, you looked absolutely flat biscuit. But so were the others. Yeah, well, I'd obviously rolled rolled at a good tempo, and like I said, I, ro- I wanted to ride her at, at, at whatever cruising speed she could handle. Um, I didn't really want to go on sectional wise, and that I didn't want to go too slow, obviously, to you know to to bring the other horses with a better turn of speed into the race. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure it was a, t- a staying contest, and, and a staying contest was going to be you know t- to her best interest. So um, mm-hmm. I let her flow basically just under her top most of the way, and. I put her under full pressure, yeah, about the 600, 700 metre mark. And I remember cornering for home and there was, a, you know, obviously at Flemington there you got those those big TVs and um, mm. every 100 metres. And I remember looking at the first one and she was about six clear. And <laughs> I thought, oh, well, this is still going okay. Yeah. And, yeah, the next one, still six clear. Oh, yeah, it's still going all right. And mm. got to the 200 metre mark and looked at the TV again. I said, gee, she's still five in front. What a race. <laughs> Uh, I got to basically the last 100 metres. I looked over at the screen and yeah. I was just hoping the screen wasn't frozen because the yeah. margin was still the same and uh, mm. I had to take a peek over my right shoulder just, just to see and, um, yeah, that was a, that was the moment I realised I, uh, I was five clear and I was going to win the uh, the Crown Oaks. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Wonderful yeah. old race, La Squetty Spirit. That was her only win in 22 starts, and she wins one of the most romantic and famous fillies races on the Australian turf, the Victorian Oaks. Yeah, amazing. Amazing, even with her and Secret. Uh, you know, they only had a couple win- few wins between them, and mm. they've won an Epson, a Flight Stakes, and an Oaks, and uh, yeah. no one else was able to win on them. So, uh, something pretty special. Brandon, that's what keeps people going in the racing game. That glorious uncertainty. That's it. That's it. If uh, if everything went to market expectations and and all that sort of stuff, I think we'd all become professional punters and we wouldn't work wouldn't work a day in our lives. So okay, um, right. yeah, uh, yeah, it's the it's the great side of racing. Yeah, like you said, the uncertainty and um, you just never know what happens. To win the Oaks was pretty special. To win an Epsom was unbelievable. To win the 2018 Golden Slipper was something else again. You led all the way to beat Uhud and Sunlight on 
Esther Jarb for Team Hawks, who'd been great supporters. What a delight for you to win for that stable. Yeah, that was probably, uh, at a group once, that was probably the one that um, meant the most in a way. Like, yeah, my first one was great. Uh, my first one in Melbourne was good. But uh, after after a few group ones, yeah, everyone, you know, it's it's the big four, you know, your Caulfield Cup, your Melbourne Cup, your Cox Plate, your Golden Slipper. You know, everyone wants one of the Grand Slams and, uh, to, to to win it to win one of the Grand Slams was um, something you know. Growing up, I never thought would would have been possible. Um, I never looked at myself in that category that I'd be able to win a Golden Slipper one day. And that you know, you you hope of riding a winner and you hope of doing this and that. But mm. that sort of level growing up, I never thought I could achieve. Um, so yeah, to uh, to win a world. golden slip, yeah, yeah, it was. I think yeah, that was probably one I got very emotional with after winning that. Um, Did you? Yeah, uh, that, that meant a lot. And um, to win it for Team Hawks, who at the time I was their number one rider, and they're very loyal, gave me great support, and um, we had a fabulous couple of seasons. Um, then you know the, the year before I was just beaten in the premiership, and that season I was able to win it. So. Uh, it was a it was a great year, uh, yeah. The 2017-2018. Sadly, Esther Jarb missed her three year old campaign through injury, and she just didn't come up the following autumn. She went to stud after only seven starts, but they can never take that golden slipper away from her. No, she was a very talented filly, and yeah, I think after the slipper, we just never seen the best of her again, and. Um, she, I've got no doubt, you know, staying sound and, and that sort of stuff. If she'd come up, she was going to be a high-quality Group 1 sprinter, but um, mm. that's racing and, uh, yeah, the slipper hoodoo got another one. You mentioned that big season, 2017-18, when you were at the peak of your powers. You won the Provincial Premiership, the New South Wales Premiership with 164 wins and the Metro Premiership with 92 beating a great rider in Blake Shin. Would you believe it if I told you I'm the only one to do it? <laughs> Are you? I, I, I yeah, have no idea. Yeah, So um, the year before hurt me, uh, hurt bad. I, I, I'd never set a goal to, to win a Metropolitan Premiership. I just wanted to stay consistent. Um, and, you know, it, it all probably stems back to, I think, uh, what year would it have been? Um, maybe 2014 when um, mm. uh, Nathan Berry passed away. I was sort of at the time mm. just going through the motions. A bit. I'd won the group one on Switzerland, but I'd been very inconsistent with my riding. And um, when Nathan sort of lost his life, um, we were pretty cl- I was pretty close with Nathan. I obviously grew up, you know, apprentice with him. And um, it just made me look at life in a different, different way, um, you know, like, Nate, you know, worked hard, did everything right. Um, you know, he was in Singapore riding well and it was just taken from him and um, mm. I suppose taken from everyone, you know, losing Nate. And uh, I just got to the stage thing. I remember sitting at home one night and I just thought, well, that's unfair. Like, how does how does this work? You know, how come mm. that happens? And, uh, I, you know, I spoke to my, fa- my, my dad at the time and my manager mm. and, I just I felt like I was wasting an opportunity, you know. Um, Nathan, yeah. you know, Nathan was sort of the the wake up point that you know, and it's you know, anything can be taken from us, and you know, your life can just basically go like that. And um, so I made a point of just trying to work hard and, and stay consistent, and 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 
and get the most out of it. You know, if I was going to ride and, and do what I love, just, you know, do it as well as I could. So um, from 2015 basically to 2016, um, those next two seasons, I went from, you know, outside a top 10 rider to, uh, to being, you know, in, in, in the top five. I think I went from, you know, fifth to fourth. Mm. Um, and then the 16th, 17th season, I think I ran second. And, mm. um, you know, two months out, I was winning the premiership. I'd just say 10 winners. And I actually, it was the first time I'd actually thought about it going, gee, I'm a chance of winning the premiership here. And yeah. no sooner did I think about winning it, um, Huey was straight on top of me and uh, it was too good for me. And um, I probably didn't ride as, as good as I could late. I, prob- I probably let the occasion get to me. And um, mm. there's a saying sometimes that, Sometimes you need to lose one to win one. So uh, mm. I, I strongly believed in that. So when 2017 and 18 came around, um, I was hell-bent on going out and, and not making the same mistake twice. And uh, I remember, you know, about two months out again, um, I was about 12 clear of Blake and I said, no, nah, I'm not going to let this happen, you know, twice in two years. And mm. we um, we came up for a – I spoke to my manager. We There was another statistic there, like I said, that um, – no rider had ever won the New South Wales provincial, metropolitan, and, and state title all in the same year. Huey being the only one who'd come close, I think he ran second in the provincial. Mm. Um, just because obviously a lot of those meetings are run on Saturdays when you're, you're sort of riding in town. So yeah, um, yeah. I basically, oh, we had the Thursday meetings to sort of try and do it. And uh, mm. so that was the sort of goal we set. I said, I want to do all three. And um, yeah, I was able to do all three. And uh, yeah, what a season that was. Very. Very fortunate to get support off, obviously, Team Hawks. Um, you know, I got a lot of support off Chris Waller, uh, Godolphin, and um, yeah, got great opportunities from a lot of good stables, Chris Lees, and uh, mm. and was able to make the most of it. Yeah, you certainly did, and your profile was so high after that season that you were accepted by the JRA, the Japan Racing Association, oh to compete for a lengthy period of time in Japan. In fact, you went three times in all. You've ridden about 30 winners there. You've ridden in some of their biggest races, and you tell me they present a very classy product. Yeah, that was, uh, again, something that I never thought would have been possible. Um, You know, riding in Japan or riding overseas on the world stage. And uh, funny enough, I'd seen a few... um, few things on Sky Channel on that, you know, they they done a show on, uh, well, they did a show on, you know, the the, the Japanese, um, you know, breeding industry, and you know, I'd know I've known it horses horses of you know deep impact and stuff like that, but um, didn't really know what I was getting into, but yeah, obviously getting over there was very exciting, and uh, to ride there on three different stints, um, mm-hmm. my first stint was probably the most successful. I rode fourteen winners, and. Um, Enjoyed it a lot and uh, just, yeah, the, I think the last time I went there I rode, you know, I rode second in a group one, um, mm-hmm. ran fifth on a horse called Satono Diamond in the Arema Kinen, which is possibly their biggest race of the year. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a great, great three months of my riding career that um, I thoroughly enjoyed and um, would love to get back to the JRA sometime, you know, after, mm. after COVID uh, finishes up and, mm. But it's a very hard jurisdiction to get into. Um, you have to be a top two rider sort of in your state with sort of group ones behind you. And, um, yeah, the way they run their racing, um, you know, I think they've got the best horses in the world, to be honest. And mm. if we ever see the best of their um, the Japan, you know, their, their best high-profile group ones, like 
yeah, yeah, we'd probably struggle to beat them here over a mile plus. Um, Lisa Pichu is probably the best one that's come out for us sometime. You can see what she did. So, um, yeah, yeah, they've got a they've got an amazing breeding industry. Um, their whole setup from sort of when they're born to getting to the races, and then their whole setup, you know, mm-hmm. when they're racing, um, it's next level, and um, they can breed a horse and, and find a good horse for sure. You got on Chautauqua after he developed his well documented habit of refusing to jump. But you did get around on him in three races. You rode him in an Everest, the Premier Stakes, and in the shorts. He obviously left with the field in those three races. Yeah, he he sort of did. He he wasn't too bad. He 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 was he was missing the kick in a early on, but um, when I first got on him, but that was just him. But we never thought much of it. But I remember, uh, yeah, I rode him in that those three races prior, you know, including the Everest and. Hmm. Probably a bit stiff in the Everest. It was a on-speed dominated track, and I rode him in, which coming back now, I wish, I wish I just hooked him the outside and rode him a bit different. It could have been, could have been a different result. But um, it wasn't probably more tappy till his, his next prep when he came in. And I remember just trolling him, mate. Uh, I think it might have been Warwick Farm. Yeah. I mentioned, I came in and mentioned to to Michael and John. I just said, oh, I said for a stride there, I didn't think he was going to come out. And I said, oh well, that's what happened, anyways. Mm. Sure enough, two weeks later at Randwick, he didn't come out. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, so obviously he'd definitely be the best horse I've probably ever sat on and um, just disappointed I got him so late in his career because uh, mm. I still think he had more to offer for sure. But um, yeah, he was he was just – he was a, a different sort of horse. He was just too smart for his own good, I think, at the end. And mm. uh, I'm sure Rupert Lee and Connections uh, obviously had a great run with him. But uh, – are probably going to be left with the what could have been with him. You know, he'd won three TJs and yeah. a number of other Group Ones and performed on the world stage. But I still think the old boy had had a mm. bit to give, and he was just too smart for his own good. The Everest has been run four times so far, and you've been around in all four. You ran fourth on Chautauqua, fifth on Graf, ninth on In Her Time, and fifth last year on Hort Brion Her. Must be a buzz just to go around in it. For sure, for sure. It's um it's a, it's one of the you know, it's our biggest race nearly now and um very very enjoyable to you know that you know you obviously get a big crowd and they're the you know they're potentially the best sprinters um in the world that are in that lineup and uh mm. I've just got to start working on trying to get up the places a bit further there, Tappy. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't mind trying to trying to win it one year. It'd definitely pay a bit better too. Oh, wouldn't it ever? Now, your lovely wife, Taylor, has a strong racing background as the daughter of former successful jockey Neil Payne, who is now a prominent member of the Waterhouse Bot team and has been for quite a while. Thankfully, Brenton, your taste in suits is a little more conservative than that of your father-in-law. Yes, yeah, you can say that. Uh, everyone can see uh, yeah, Neil's, um, Neil's Neil's dress sense. He's obviously very out there and he does get away with it too. He um, usually <laughs> looks pretty good with it, but uh, yeah, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I'm lucky enough that I uh, I decided on which suit to wear to wear at the wedding. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm at... Uh, Obviously, I was introduced to Neil um, as an apprentice there at Gaze, um, you know, 12 years ago when yeah. Neil and Raylene basically took me in like one of their own, um, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, Christmas holidays or, 
you know, those just any day of the year that they'd, they'd have a barbecue, I was always invited. And mm. I'd obviously lost my mum um, in 2008. So, uh, mm. I, you know, Raylene was basically a, um, uh, she, she, she's become, I call her mum now. She's basically yeah, become really. my, yeah. my mum. And that's how close we I sort of were with the family. And, um, mm. like I said, they took me in as one of their own. Um, at the time, Taylor was in a long term relationship. So, uh, we were always just sort of friends and it wasn't until sort of, yeah, probably four or five years ago that uh, something started to happen and, and very lucky enough that I'm now uh, married to Taylor with a beautiful son, Hunter, and um, lucky to call, yeah, Neil and Raylene uh, in-laws. So um, uh, great racing family, um, you know, back from me, you know, Neil's, Neil's dad, um, Reg and uh, you know, Neil's brother Rodney, who's now in America doing jockey buying. So it's a very strong mm. racing family, and um, who knows, uh, there might be more to it now with Hunter. Mm. Well, little Hunter is about 17 months old, and he carries a very strong racing pedigree. Only time will tell if he looks like following in the footsteps of his dad or his maternal grandfather, or his maternal great-grandfather for that matter, because Neil's dad, Reg Payne, was a legend in the Central West back in his day. Yeah, so uh, he's got he's got a bit of pedigree to live up to, Hunter, doesn't he? Um, he sure does. Yeah. Reg was, uh, yeah, I, I, I speak to Reg quite regularly and um, he tells us some stories, but he was obviously a very well-respected jockey um, back when he was riding and... Um, and yeah, Neil was obviously very well respected, and uh, mm. now now it's sort of my turn, and uh, who knows what's next? But uh, yeah, he's, I could say uh, Taylor was he's 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 bred to be uh, he's he's by a Group One winner out of a, a daughter of a uh, Group One winner who never raced, and Taylor. So um, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got a bit of pedigree there, anyway. I can remember Neil Payne winning a Group One, uh, the race they now call the Coolmore Classic. He rode a, a filly called Strawberry Fair, which may have been trained by Colin Hayes from memory. Yeah, yeah, he uh, that's his Group One. Neil said the Coolmore, and that's the only race he's got on me. I think at the moment he keeps bringing it up, so uh, I've run second in the Coolmore. <laughs> but um, once I get the Coolmore, I think I'll have the, I'll have the wood on him for sure. Yeah, mate, he'll be bringing it up for a, a, quite a while yet too. You better get used to it. Yeah, that's the only race. I do. That's that's the next one I want to win the Coolmore, just so I can uh, <laughs> shut him I up. Yeah, I read second on Secret Admirer, and I think second on El Dorado Dreaming. So uh, yeah. yeah, when I can win the Coolmore, that would be the one that he hasn't got on me anymore. Well, Brendan, you're in the toughest school of all here in Sydney. You're well aware of that, and you've got to share rides with some world class jockeys. You need two things, mate: an unswerving work ethic and truckloads of luck. I hope you get both. Yeah, it's. Uh, I love what I do, Tappy. I don't, I don't work a day in my life. I uh, I enjoy the work-life balance of um, Sydney racing, as competitive as it is. Um, but yeah, I just keep working hard, doing our best, and riding against some world-class riders who, you know, they've all they've all been over everywhere in the world and, and been successful. So it just shows you how strong the Sydney racing is, and uh, we'll just keep turning up and, and seeing what we can do. Brendan Avdullah, it's been a delight to have you on the podcast on a Sunday morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to catch up. Thanks for speaking with me, Tappy. Appreciate it. Brendan Avdullah on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. 